Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. Today, we're chatting with the great Dr. Fred Bonner II. Professor and Endowed Chair in Educational Leadership and Counseling and Executive Director and Chief Scientist of the Mach 3 Center at Prairie View A&M University. He is formerly the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Endowed Chair in Education in the Graduate School of Education at Rutgers University and an esteemed expert in the field of diversity and education. Bonner has been the recipient of numerous awards and has authored several books, including Building on Resilience, Models and Frameworks of Black Male Success Across the P20 Pipeline, as well as the recently released Square Pegs and Round Holes, Alternative Approaches to Diverse College Student uh, Development Theory. Dr. Bonner, we're so glad you're here today. We're, you're our, one of our first guests to come back, and we're, we're glad you're here. Well, thanks for the invitation. We had such a great time talking at TGT last year, so was excited about the invitation and just glad to be here to chop it up a bit more. That's right. And, you know, that's, um, you know, getting, getting a chance to dive into your work a little bit more. Bought a few books of yours here that we have here. Oh, excellent. And, uh, <laughs> and it's so, uh, it, it was so revealing to me, just kind of your heart and, and what you're working on in your work. And you talk so much about uh, kind of uh, what you're doing now at Prairie View A&M in our last conversation. I was kind of wondering if we could take a half step back and talk a little bit about some of the other things that you bring up in your work. And, and I think this could be a really illuminating thing for parents or educators who are listening. You talk a lot at the beginning of your papers or your books uh, that I noticed at least on the definition of giftedness and kind of the, the evolution of that and the theories behind that. So I'm wondering if you could give me a, uh, the 101 version of, uh, of maybe a little bit of an intro of what that uh, story over time has been in terms of uh, giftedness. And you even said in, in, in your book, you described that there's a universal fascination with individuals who possess extra, extraordinary mental abilities. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history there? And then I'd love to segue that into a little bit more of your work here today. Sure, absolutely. When we look at um, giftedness and how the definition has evolved, we started off um, with a definition that I would call a very sterile definition in the sense that it was sterile in the sense that it, it looked very narrowly at logical mathematical giftedness that um, some of our theorists have uh, called it. So basically meaning, were you great in um, reading and literacy and writing? Were you great in mathematics and science? So could you do the, uh, could you do the math? Could you do the science? Could you do the, um, the analogies? Could you, um, could you write? So very, very based on um, that whole notion of the quantitative aspects of, you know, is it, uh, can, you, uh, can you complete, can you uh, actually, do those things and move the needle in the direction that basically foregrounded math and science. So we move beyond just looking at those narrow definitions of the logical mathematical giftedness, you know, could you do well on the test? You know, the standard stuff we see with SAT, ACT, um, the geometry problems, the algebra problems. So those were being like the um, baseline um, measures or metrics used to determine if you were gifted. So as we move forward, the definition became a little bit more encompassing 
not just because of issues of race and ethnicity, just because you have like a diversity of people and their areas of expertise or actually the knowledge that they brought to the table. So to only say that you were gifted because you were um, adept at math and science or adept at these logical mathematical practices was very, very short-sighted. So not only did you miss, you know, now foregrounding and bringing in the issue of race and ethnicity, well, even gender, you know, given the fact how we socialize women, how we socialize girls. So the boys, you know, they would have opportunities to manipulate the manipulatives and uh, learn about, you know, mathematical things or learn about, you know, very technical things or some of the examples that you would have on these tests to determine if someone's with, if someone was gifted, you know, it would they would use like widgets and machinery and different things. So to really, really test those areas of knowledge that some people weren't actually getting. So from a gender perspective and also from a um, perspective of race and ethnicity, you have some populations that, you know, that strict adherence to that logical mathematical approach left them outside of the um, definitional um, parameters for gifted and talented. So as we move forward to recognize that not only did we have, you know, women, did we have girls, but we also had, you know, African-Americans, we had uh, uh, Latinx populations. So we had this diversity of people that were bringing knowledge and expertise, but different knowledge and expertise, you know, having been, having, having a foundation that was uh, based not necessarily solely on the ability to be adept at math and science, but also what about the oral tradition? You know, what about, you know, being able to, as my uh, grandmother would say, you know, having some common sense. So some of those things, the commonsensical things, you know, were not necessarily things that would be measured by this uh, standardized test. You know, again, very, very antiseptic, very, very narrow. If you were good in math and science and if you could score well, then you were gifted. But if you were not great in those areas, and let's say that, you know, your giftedness was the fact that, you know, you had um, a great memory, great recollection of, of things. Um, you were able to be creative. You were able to pull all these disparate pieces and create these wonderful holistic things. None of that stuff was actually being measured in the ways that it should have been measured. And it didn't take into account that you had different populations based on you know, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, all these different factors that were coming to the educational enterprise with some deficits, particularly deficits if you were only going to measure using that logical mathematical approach to giftedness. So I'm coming from this particular community, this cultural enclave, this particular side of the tracks, not to say there's anything deficit about me being a person of color, about me being a woman, about me being different from the mainstream, but there are some differences in the ways that I was socialized, my cultural capital, my social capital. So if the cultural and social capital to say that I am gifted is only invested in this examination that measures logical and mathematical ability, then I'm always gonna be left out. So as we evolve and as, a, as we started to see that, hey, we gotta have some tolerances, you know, we gotta have some latitude to pull in how people from different cultures, different races, different ethnicities, different genders, different, um, different regions of the country 
how they understand and how they approach, you know, learning, their learning, growth, and development. So therefore, we started to look at the first definition of giftedness, the, um, the Marlin definition, Sydney Marlin. <laughs> so that definition was very, very, as I said, antiseptic, logical, mathematical. You know, were you great in math? Were you great in science? Were you great in um, literacy, reading? But then as we started to see these populations that actually came to the uh, plate as well, the 1993 definition was a lot more inclusive. And that definition, that was the first time that you saw the language that said things like, gifts and talents come from, popula from individuals representing population, a diverse population. So that is the first time you started to get the language saying that it's not just about logical mathematical, but it's also about who you are and what you bring to the context. And that was the first time that you started to get a narrative around there are individuals that come, come to the table who are gifted and talented from every socioeconomic stratum. The traditional definition was basically, it was very elite, it was very white, and it was very male. So if you go back, you know, to Terman and some of the early studies that looked at, you know, what giftedness meant, you know, it was IQ, you know, certain score, IQ, and hey, we based uh, giftedness on where you fall within uh, the range of that IQ score. But now, early definition, Marlin, layering that in with Terman, some of the Terman studies, the, the termites as they call them. So as we move forward to the 93 definition, we started to look at, you know, hey, this definition has to include more competencies. It's almost like if you layer it in, um, I'm co connecting some of the theories here, but uh, for lack of a better use of theory, some of the work of Howard Gardner. So Gardner's work, if you connect that to, and again, this you know kind of after the definitional stuff, but around the same time. But what Gardner was showing is that you know individuals have multiple intelligences, and I think the definition of giftedness has picked up that notion that individuals have multiple manifestations of being gifted. And those manifestations, they come from an asset perspective, not necessarily a deficit perspective. So we were starting to say that if you were a person of color, if you were a woman, if you were somebody who was outside of this traditional, you were not doing well. And not only were you not doing well, you were not gifted. So what we started to see is that when we started to look at multiple manifestations and multiple ways that people operationalize their gifts based on who they were, where they came from, and based on their capital, the definition started to change. And I think that's so important for Texas educators because so much of what we have in our TEA defined our definition of gifted. It connects to exactly what you're saying in that narrative over time there, and it connects back to those, um, those conversations. Uh, it, quoting from it here, a uh, gifted or talented student is a child or youth who performs at or shows the potential for performing a remarkably high level of accomplishment when compared to others of the same age, experience, or environment. And that's that we're only halfway through. And so even just that right there, I think is so important to, to see that there, there's potential that could manifest in different ways. And does our definition of giftedness allow us to see that in those different, whether it's populations or experiences or, or cultures? And uh, yeah, that's pretty important that we see that because if it really is about potential and growing that potential, it could look a lot of different ways. Absolutely. That, that is the key word, potential. And we didn't, that previous definition, that early definition, the Marlin definition, 
it didn't talk about potential and it didn't talk about the potential coming outside of these traditional populations. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like having a, that, uh, uh, that definition, which encompasses more, that's, that's got to be pretty critical for the work that you do, I'd imagine, so that people are not closing the door for opportunities for, for students that, that could be really taking advantage of these. Absolutely. I think that what the, um, I guess the loosening of the um, parameters that have uh, defined giftedness is that we have had opportunities now to move into places and spaces, into these contexts where black and brown people have have intellectual dominance, but because they uh, were unrecognized before, you didn't get to capitalize on that. One of my um, one of my articles is is um, it looks at leadership potential, um, and I look at um, shoot I'm blocking on the title. It's um, it's in Gifted Child today. Years ago, I think it's 2016 maybe, um, but it looks at um, giftedness and leadership, and one of the um, as we look at the definitions of giftedness, one of the uh, metrics that we've always had as part of the definition, even going back to the Marlin definition, leadership has always been a part of how we define giftedness. But when you, what I argue in that article is that that is probably the least recognized way to identify someone as being gifted. So I made the argument, I was like, this was, um, the article kind of goes back to the um, Obama era and it was like, you know, there are so many black boys, so many black men, um, even connecting it to this came out a lot. One of the courses that I routinely taught when I was a professor at uh, Texas A&M is uh, college student development theory. And we talked about leadership in a different vein in that course. And we were talking about leadership and leadership potential. And I was sharing with them one of the things that historically many African-Americans get males or females is that growing up in the black church, I mean, everyone, and this came out with one of my doctoral students who was actually working for A&M in the office of Greek life. And she said, I always noticed because she was over um, National Panhellenic and um, over IFC. So she had all of the black Greeks and all of the white Greeks as well that reported to her. And she said, it was so interesting that the white Greeks would say, how is it that the African-American students, the black students, they always knew Robert's rules of order. They always knew how to conduct a meeting. They always knew, I said, and she said, you know what, that comes from the black church. Growing up in the black church, one thing that they pushed into your head was, you know, knowing parliamentary procedure. And also at some point in time, all of us has been a treasurer of Sunday schools. Someone is always, someone has been like a deputy in Sunday school, something. So you were, this, these notions of like, you know, protocol and procedure were kind of ingrained in us. So again, that goes to that leadership potential that so many African-American males and females that they have it, that they're steeped in, but because the definition of giftedness is that has been an area that has been virtually silent. So we misidentifying, you know, what would it look like in the state of Texas? What would it look like for gifted and talented programs if you develop a rubric, develop some type of way to measure leadership and leadership abilities and have that as one of the measures and one of the metrics to admit black males, black females into gifted and talented programs? 
Oh man. And that's super challenging for me because I just feel like there's always a need for great leaders. And to know that we have so many students who have that potential, uh, are we seeing it and are, are we developing it over time? Um, and I wonder too, I mean, just connecting it back to some of your other work on, on resilience and other things. And, uh, you know, I just wonder if that's all correlated to maybe an area that we can, we can kind of go back to our districts and think, Hey, are we seeing this? Are we trying to grow this? And if not, what can we do? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to find, I will send it to you. Um, the article on, um, leadership in black males, but, that one was really, really a focus on because I had heard some, you know, over the years, I'm like, well, here's an area that black males actually are pretty dominant, but we don't look at it. So that article was a focus on that. Same for Hispanic males, you know, sure. having those leadership abilities coming from those, those strong family traditions where you're, you know, you're groomed to be a leader, but then we don't, we don't look at that as a measure. Right. And again, tying it back to TEA. So if you're a teacher in, uh, in, in, in the state of Texas, TEA says as a part of the definition, uh, as I said earlier, it extends to some examples. And it says students who possess an unusual capacity for leadership. Leadership. It's right there. You know, we could be tapping into that more and more. I, I guess that's difficult, perhaps, in, uh, in, a, in a, uh, a culture and education that probably incentivizes those core contents or those star performances and measures. But uh, again, our world needs great leaders and we have the ability to a leverage point to be able to see that and, and to work with that in the definition there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what, one of the things that I love about your work too, in fact, Thomas Abair uh, complimented this uh, on the back of one of your books and uh, that you have some interviews with, with students and, and we're talking kind of definitionally of what giftedness is, but I can only imagine how giftedness or potential or however you frame that necessarily is probably best defined when you see students moving into that. And you talked about Trey and Steven in one particular book. Um, how, do, how does students and, and working with students or, or, um, or, or our youth help illuminate what, what it means to go from having potential to realizing that potential? That's a great question. That is a great question. And I would say the res my response to that, it is um, it's multi-pronged. So there are a lot of moving parts that go with operationalizing and realizing that potential. It's not just a unitary, solitary endeavor. I mean, many times black males, you know, they don't they don't see it, they don't recognize it, you know, that's like they basically push off this notion that, you know, no, I'm not gifted. So many times it goes, it takes the peers, it takes the community, it takes the role model, it takes, you know, that teacher, that professor. So it really is about a village helping that black male see his potential that he actually is gifted and talented. It's, it's very much like um, uh, my fraternity brother and friend, uh, Gilman Whiting, his scholar identity model. In his model, you know, part of the bedrock of the model is basically self-perception, self-esteem. So do these black males, do they see themselves as scholars? Do they see themselves as academics? And most of the time the answer is no. The same thing applies, I have my own model, um, the AGBME model, Academically Gifted Black Male Engagement. And much like Whiting, 
I found in my own work, one of the factors, you know, there's six different factors. One of the factors is self-perception, self-esteem. And again, this comes from my own scholarship and work looking at, you know, over the years, looking at black males. And it's interesting, we both, you know, that is one of the factors from in both of our models because it is so true. You know, how do I see myself? You know, what is, what do I think about my potential? What do I think about my abilities? What do I think about my future? So that's very important. But just as Whiting has, I mean, there are other components that lead to the manifestation of these black males seeing themselves as uh, gifted or as scholars. So absolutely. So the peers mean something. How you see yourself means something. The environment that you're in, a big word for me is context. And for context, it's about people, it's about place, and it's about situation. When you take um, my definition of context to its logical end, if you start with the people, who are the people that are there and that influence, you know, you, whether it's about gifted and talented, whether it's about creativity, whether it's about scholarly ability. The place, what place are you in? So the place has a bearing, is it the classroom? Is it the university context? Is it the um, theater program? Is it the, um, the sports field? So what's the place and what is the situation? Each situation is unique. So is a situation about testing? Is a situation about placement? Is a situation about feeling um, that I belong mm -hmm. in this particular um, environment? And uh, which leads me right to uh, another one of the major factors is environment. You have to look at the environment. So what is that K-12 setting? You know, what does it mean to be in X, Y, and Z high school there in Fort Worth. What is the experience of a black male in Fort Worth at Pasco versus, you know, some of your other high schools there, you know, um, Dunbar. So how are you, what do these black males experience in this environment? Um, do they have teachers? Do they have principals? Do they have, get to the coordinators? Do they have folks who are absolutely invested in them being um, successful? So that is a, is a factor as well. And also family influence and support is one of my factors in my model. Family for black males, family for Hispanic males, family for many minoritized males means so, so, so much. So we have to look at how does family influence, how does family support, and some of the literature, how does family detract sometimes from these black males being successful? Because Sometimes family is like a counterweight, a counterbalance in the sense that, you know, to be gifted, you know, oh, that's he's the egghead of the family, you know, his ideas are way out here. It's always been so different from the rest of us. Or um, there's a whole narrative in one of my good colleagues, another fraternity brother. <laughs> um, he is a um, current uh, AERA president and um, his book is titled, a title on Howard, his book is titled Black Mailed, M-A-L-E-D, Black Mailed. He does one of the best jobs of talking about the whole scholar, black male athlete thing. Oh, wow. And how sometimes families are the culprit in that the family sees the potential on the athletic field. So sometimes 
that will lead them to, oh, that's okay that you're not doing that well academically or, oh, you know, why worry about the books? You know, our ticket out of here is going to be the athletic field, not you doing well in calculus. So there mm -hmm. is a lot of stuff out there. So I say all that to say, going back to your question, that there are a lot of factors that lead to these black males feeling manifesting their gifts and talents. And I think that's that's a good way to put it of, of I think the hope of any educator or parent listening is how do I play a part of helping this student in front of me manifest that and realize that. Um, let, let, let's maybe give a scenario here. You know, let's say you are a, a third grade ELA teacher and you have a young African-American male who shows um, clear potential and maybe the scores aren't there. Maybe they are. You know, do you have any advice to move into that gap? And clearly you just spoke to several kind of dimensions of that, but maybe what are some practical things a teacher could do, whether it's getting them into that GT program, but I, I could even see a scenario where they even want to be able to help uh, beyond that. You know what I mean? Of just like, that's, that's one pathway to get them there, but also uh, it, it, what can a teacher do? Well, I'm, I'm, firmly, I'm firmly a believer that you, you got to first know who they are before you can help them to become. So spend the time finding out what are their interests? What are their motivations? You know, what, what is their um, background? What is their experience? So again, for me, you know, who are you before I try to help you get to a particular place? Because how can I help you get there when I know who you are? Who am I helping to get there? So finding out, you know, having a conversation with that black male, having a conversation with that student, you know, what are you interested in? You know, how, what are some of the, what are some of your best subjects? You know, what are subjects that I challenge you? Um, what, um, what are your hopes, dreams, goals, desires? You know, again, if it's a young, young student, you know, it might just be going to the next grade, which is fine. But yeah. at least you have some type of understanding of who, who these students are. And I think one and two, there's another, there's a sidebar to this in the sense that um, it shows that the teacher is interested in the student just beyond the academic stuff. That goes back to my first book. Um, you held up my gifted African-American males in college book. And one, absolutely. <laughs> one of the things that I found in that book, and, and this is not, you're talking about, you know, the young, young child, but I'm talking about these college age students. It was the same thing. One of the findings in that book is that the students, they found that, you know, they resonated more and they were more successful when they knew that it was not just about the academics, it was about who they were as a person. And all of my, all of the work that I did in that, um, for that study in that book, it really distills down to, it distills down to this these two different models. So both models were successful at helping black males to move through the system, but one was more successful than the other in the sense that, so it distilled down to, the research-oriented focus that you saw in the um, research institution, Texas A&M Commerce, versus the um, the liberal arts focus at Grambling State University, the HBCU. So it is still down to in the research one institution, most of the what the students expressed was that you know there was concern about their academic prowess and who they were academically. 
but not so much once they left the classroom, once they left the laboratory. In the liberal arts enclave, the HBCU, the students felt like there was concern about who they were holistically within the classroom setting and outside of the classroom setting. So to me, it, that kind of sets up a story that shows you that what these black males need to be successful, it moves beyond race. It wasn't about Texas A&M University Commerce being a PWI and Grand Lake State University being an HBCU. It was bigger than the racialized framing of those institutions. It went to what they did within those contexts. Mm. It just happened to be that the PWI was a research-oriented institution. The HBCU it's a research. I think Grambling might now have the label of being a research too, maybe, but whether they were or not, the ethos in the HBCU and most HBCUs is a liberal arts ethos. The liberal arts ethos is a concern for the whole student. I'm concerned with you in the classroom and outside of the classroom. The research to ethos is a concern with the academics, with the lab, with what you bring to the academic setting. I'm not poo-pooing A&M Commerce, nor am I poo-pooing Grambling. <laughs> I'm just saying that at the core of it, it really gets down to what these institutions are doing. It's that environment. It's that E that I mentioned in my model that was so, so, so very important. So is it, uh, would this be a bad comparison to make if that if you are a, um, a general ed classroom teacher and you have a, a young African-American male that shows this potential, you know it, you've just seen it whether it's a, and maybe they're struggling academically. If your main focus is just, well, I'm going to get them where they need to go academically. And you kind of forget the part of knowing the kid, having a well-rounded approach, maybe trying to uh, break the barriers down of outside of the classroom, you, you might miss the opportunity to grow that potential. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a journey. You know, what about, I mean, the journey from here to our uh, Los Angeles, you know, Michael, if we jumped in a car, yeah, we're leaving here and we're going to Los Angeles, but we never talk and you never talk to me, I don't talk to you, we're going to get to know each other. That's going to be a very empty journey. At mm. the end of the day, we're going to make it there. We're going to get to Los Angeles. But what have you learned about me? What have we done in the process of the journey of becoming, of getting there? And it's the same thing with these Black males. So, I mean, it's more than just, you know, getting there at the end of the day, get, if you get them into gifted and talented, but what does that mean? Mm. Have you learned about them as they move along to do things that actually not only enhance their experiences, that actually lead to them being successful once they get there? Mm. Right. Oh, man. And that's got to be a convicting message, too. I mean, especially over the past few years and the uniqueness of that it has been that everybody um, is struggling with falling behind a little bit, right? And just, uh, just it's been a tough few years for everyone. But um, I'd imagine you just can't miss that opportunity whenever you can to build that relationship, uh, try to respect and understand the culture and what that student's been through. And, and hopefully that'll provide some doors to uh, know that that student cares about you uh, moving forward. And this came up a little bit when talking to Del Sigley a little bit with his achievement orientation model of kind of that the student can kind of look to you as someone who could help get them to their goals. Um, I, I, I'd imagine that's, that's really important in this process. Absolutely. I think that, you know, it, it, it sounds, you know, trite. And it's, um, when you say, you know, 
students want to know how much you care, you know, the whole notion of, you know, before you, how much you, how much knowledge you have, they want to know how much you care about them. And I think that is particularly important for our students of color. And many of them come from that tradition of the parent, the grandparent, the role model, the community, the community, again, you know, that, that book knowledge, that learning, but then what about the common sense? What about, you know, how, how do you feel, you know, before you get to how much you learn, you know, how, who are you in this process? You know, how does it make you feel? You know, what are your motivations? What, what's your drive? What do you, what's your ambition? Those things are also very important. And again, it goes back to the research that I did very early on for the, um, the book in that I um, really got to see holistically because I wanted to know what were the factors that led these black males being successful in the HBCU context versus the PWI context. And again, I will say that's where I started. I was very, very clear in my head. I thought I was clear that it really is about being in a black college versus a white college. Mm. Yeah, it is, but not so much. Right. And I can equate that to black teacher versus a white teacher. Mm. So at the end of the day, it's not the, um, the moniker, it's not the label, it's not the, uh, it's not the veneer, it's what lies beneath and what you're doing for them that lies beneath that really makes the difference. So again, it wasn't about Grambling versus A&M Commerce, it was about a liberal arts ethos that was a concern for the whole person versus a research-oriented ethos that was concerned about the academic potential of what you bring to the lab or the classroom. I love that. And, um, you know, there's so many other topics I feel like I can jump into uh, with you on and, and I feel like it's endless. So I've got I've got some notes here, too. I was like, you know, I feel like I can't get by without having this conversation, too, with, without talking about things like resilience and creativity, uh, th things of that nature. So, so tell me a little bit about your work in those areas and what we found out and, and especially in, in light. Again, your your Mach 3 program, which is really a combination of all your work, which focuses in on. Uh, minority achievement in creativity and high ability. You know, what, what do we know about creativity being a part of this process as well? Yes, as far as creativity and a lot of, um, a lot of my work stems from some of my early experiences. I have had the benefit and the blessing to be a postdoc when I finished my doctoral program at the University of Arkansas. I was able to, um, traveled to um, Yale University. I worked for Robert Sternberg in his lab as a wow. uh, postdoc. So a lot of his work was influential in my, in my research. It was part of my dissertation. His triarchic theory was, really resonated with me because I thought, and he was one of the early ones doing work looking at the potential of uh, people of color. And so I used a lot of his early work, particularly the triarchic theory that basically said that, you know, giftedness, you have that, again, that logical mathematical gifted, but then you have this form of giftedness is about the creativity. And then you have uh, a form of giftedness that's about the, um, the practical knowledge. You know, what about in, in the African-American community? Um, I know in uh, Latinx communities, they talk a lot about, you know, everyone has that uncle who um, maybe uh, didn't necessarily finish um, college or didn't even finish high school. But that person knew numbers like this. I mean, could do all kinds of brilliant things. So. I just um, really connected and resonated with uh, Sternberg's work, basically saying that, you know, giftedness is more than just logical mathematical. It's creative and it's also, 
you know, practical, you know, the person who has that, the street smarts. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot that we discount by only looking at, you know, that very antiseptic view, as I've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So as we move forward, I think manifesting resilience and being resilient has a lot to do with, you know what, I've never thought about it. You're making me think. So I would say that (laughs) (laughs) to truly be resilient, I would say that you're not a one trick pony. You're able to, you're able to seamlessly move across those different manifestations of gifts and talents. So Sternberg defined it as three things, his triarchic theory, but for lack of a better expression, I think you're able to move and seamlessly move between logical, mathematical to practical and to creative. Mm. And I think that is what leads to the resilience because when you think about it, to be a black male, to survive in these enclaves, there are times when you absolutely have to have a logical mathematical ability. I don't care how great you are, you know, it's changed, changing a little bit now, but I don't care how great you are, if you don't do well on that SAT, ACT, GRE, you ain't getting in some of these places. So that's where you have to have the logical mathematical ability and once you get in, okay, I, you know, I've always wanted to, I thought about becoming a doctor, but I'm also interested in chemical engineering. I'm also interested in, so how do I pull together all my interests and pull that into a major that is really going to not only be something that I'm going to be interested in, but something that I can use as my career and my profession. And there's a very, 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 practical aspect of that, you know, as a black male here at UT Austin, as a black male here at at Baylor, as a black male here, practically for me to survive here, I got to find some more black folks. I got to find some more people of color. I got to find a community Mm. that's really going to support me. So that's, that's a very practical thing in that my identity, my development is based on me having this practical giftedness, this practical intelligence. So all of those multiple and all of those intelligences that are manifestations of his model and giftedness, I think that at the end of the day, that is where the true resilience comes. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I, and I feel like we're just, I, I, I mean, you probably know this way better than I do, but I just feel like we're just now tapping into things like resilience, grit, and these other kind of uh, uh, other aspects of giftedness. And I like how you describe that being able to move along because there's so many areas you have to navigate and that's a skill too. There's value to that too. Uh, just as much as some of these other things, but again, do we see that? Do we see that kids maybe have that potential in those domains, which I feel like when you get into the real world is extremely practical and, and, and meaningful to have. Absolutely. You have to have a smattering of all three. Uh, you really have to have it all. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, you know, it, it, uh, just trying to catch up with you and where you're at right now. I mean, it, tell us a little bit about your work and some of, some of the things that you're in the midst of now, uh, maybe so that we can kind of learn as you're learning as you, as you go through this. Certainly. So got a, quite, a, quite a few things going on. In <laughs> fact, just kind of swirling over here with all the projects. Yeah. It's a good thing. I won't complain, but um so uh, the most major project I'm working on right now is um, I have a grant from the uh, Kellogg Foundation. It's a, uh, it's a $1.5 million grant, and um, it's titled BMST, 
Black Male STEM Teach. And what Black Male STEM teaches about getting more Black males certified in mathematics and science and getting them into the classroom, particularly at the middle grades, the middle school level. And that goes to um, share this story. When we were looking at um, HISD and looking at getting more Black males into teaching, particularly in STEM, so when we ran the numbers, we saw that, you know, Houston roughly has 11,000 uh, teachers in general. Of those 11,000, um, a little over a thousand are black males. And then when you look at black males who actually go into um, STEM and STEM teaching, that number drops down to nine. Therefore, we were able to tell that narrative, tell that story. And Kellogg thought it was um, pretty profound. Um, and it is pretty profound. Um, Beyond, beyond, you know, trying to secure a grant, trying to tell a story to get the grant. But I mean, this is real stuff. Um, and Kellogg recognized that. And the beauty about this grant is that they wanted me to slow the full court press because most grants, you know, have, have had several, have several going right now. So you get the money, you start moving, you start moving, you start moving. That's just what you do. I mean, you have a timeline. Well, Kellogg, to their credit, is, you know what? We want you to slow it down because... This grant is not just about having the money and doing the stuff. This one is about you developing a model. So we want this, what you do, we want you to be very meticulous. So everything we do, I'm chronicling, how do we even get to this idea? What do we have to do? What were some of the challenges? You know, What were some of the things that supported us? What were some of the gaps? So we've really been taking our time spreading things out to ensure that we have this model because when we're done, we wanna be able to take this model and share with uh, Fort Worth ISD, Dallas ISD, Austin ISD, so that folks can see this is what you do to get more black males, not only teaching, but more black males teaching STEM. I love that. And I think that fits in well. You know, we talk a lot, um, again, going back to TEA expectations of gifted and talented programs of our students leaving the program with those abilities to create those advanced level products and performances? Are we getting them into the authentic space? And it really seems like that's what your work is kind of seeking to do, not just to establish that um, in respect and, and of, a, of a culture that um, maybe has not been uh, tapped into as well as they could have in terms of reaching that potential. But but it sounds like you're really trying to equip places to be able yes. to to get there and maybe when they don't feel as confident to do it on their own. Absolutely. We are really trying to um, trying to move the needle and to not only ensure that there are more black males, black male teachers coming into HISD, but to create this model that we can move, even move outside of Texas because we know there is a national crisis when we look at the number of black men going into teaching when you look at the numbers writ large, less than 2% of your teachers are black males, mm. less than 2%. So now if you put in there black male teachers in STEM, then it drops down to like 0.8%. Wow. Wow. Man, this, this is great. And again, I feel like we could talk all day, but I'm going to go ahead and transition. I've got a new fast five. Last time we talked, <laughs> a few kind of end of our conversation type questions where they're uh, there may be tapping into some broad ideas, but we're kind of zipping through them. And, and I think uh, I had to modify these just for you in our conversation today because we've been through this before and I love it. Um, so uh, again, 
big, broad questions, uh, but we're going to try to tap into them quickly uh, to wrap our discussion and to uh, leave a little convicted about the very dimensions of gifted education. Uh, so, so when we start there, we've started to tap into this a little bit, but uh, if you could summarize, what are some areas where gifted education falls short? So if you're a parent or a teacher listening to this, something that uh, as advocates, we can hear and say, okay, let's, let's move into that space. There's a need there. I would say there's, um, there's a gap. Um, gifted education falls short in identification. Mm. I would say gifted and talented education, they fall short in um, being inclusive. Um, I think they fall short along those those four, those four major constructs. I spent a lot of time working with school districts, working with higher ed institutions, focusing on uh, community colleges. I just did a presentation for Houston Community College on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And I think that gifted and talented, you know, throughout the country, particularly throughout the state, needs an infusion of training, not only for schools, for um, even for parents and community. So what does it mean to be diverse, to be equitable, to be inclusive and to be to foreground belonging for populations? So I think we fall down there, the DEIB stuff um, and add justice. Um, I think the identification piece is problematic. And I think we are too stymied in um, what we believe, and even though we have a definition that's more inclusive, but I think people still go back to that traditional definition. As much as we say, oh, we believe that giftedness comes in all these different manifestations from these different communities, yeah, we really don't. And mm -hmm. we don't do a good job of that. And you know what? We don't do a good, good job of, um, there's gifted and talented. We don't do anything with the talented. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do. We do a halfway job of working with gifted you know we talked about the attendant problems with that but then the whole what does it mean to be talented how do we move beyond how do you measure that how do you are there metrics for that and if there aren't metrics you know i know it's difficult you know what does talent mean how do we but we have to start you know so we have part of a definition part of a term terminology gifted and talented but over the years I don't think we've done very much to say that, you know, if you're talented, what is talented? What does that mean? Is that in the sciences? And if it is, how do you show that? How do you operationalize it? If it's in um, music, the arts, the visual arts, the creative arts, you know, what does it mean to manifest talent in that area? Mm. So I think that's another major gap as well. Convicting indeed. And yeah, absolutely. What can we do to really level that up? Again, to, to help those kids be prepared when they go out of this world to, to, to do great things with that talent and with that potential. Okay, another question for you. Question number two here. Is there a well-known figure, maybe a celebrity, it uh, doesn't have to be, but a well-known figure that exemplifies what uh, your work hopes to produce? Okay, so I'll say that one more time. You say, is there a... Uh... Is there a well-known figure? If you said the name, most people listening would be like, ah, Yes that you think of that exemplifies what your work hopes to produce. You're like, man, I see this person out there and that's the exact sort of story or person that I hope to uh, celebrate or, or to, to be a similar end product of kind of your service, your work. 
Oh, that is a good, that, that's a good question. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Let's see here. Sorry, I'm um, putting you on the spot too much here today. Yeah, that, that's a good one. That is a good one. Um, Hmm, as I think. Um, there's so many, but I'm not <laughs> <laughs> And if you're like me, you don't always know all the celebrities out there. I'm not, uh, I'm not mm-hmm. I don't know what goes on out there, so I understand. <laughs> um, I. The person that just just keeps popping in my head for whatever reason is actually not a black male, although there are several out there, but I would say, I just really resonate with um, Viola Davis. I just think, I think that she embodies so much of what I think it means to be, not only to be gifted, but to be black, but to be um, versatile, but to be resilient. Mm. Um, and so part of um, the gifted thing for me is that, you know, the whole identity, what does it mean to be gifted? And I am, for her, it seems like she has defied um, in a different vein in the acting world. So here it is, she has the, um, Going back to Sternberg's model, she has the she has the academics, she has the logical mathematical. I mean, she got her acting degree. She was she was the Juilliard, so mm-hmm. um, absolutely brilliant. Um, she has the uh, the practical skills. I mean, the acting ability, all that. I mean, just sheer raw skill. But then she has the creativity to play all these different characters, these, these different people, and. Even with um, the world, the acting world, trying to shape and mold and say that here is what an, a black actress actress should look, how you should look, how mm-hmm. you should behave, what the uh, phenotypic characteristics are, and I think the gifted and talented, we're working up, we're working a lot with the phenotype. So that's why for black males, many times you know we don't look the part. So so the perception is then you have to go through all these different identity dances and try to become this different person to get the to get that untalented world to even recognize who you are. I think that she has gone through some of that very same thing, but she's maintained her identity. I actually saw this mm-hmm. um, video of her talking. It was an interview. This was years, a couple of years ago. And she was saying how... Um, Someone said they were talking about different actresses. This is really when she was taking off. And they're like, well, you know, uh, Viola, is, she's amazing, but she's um, she's not what we, we would call your traditional beauty in acting. And she says, she said, and she said this, she said, now, you know what that means? You're ugly. Mm. She said, I don't look like, you know, what Hollywood, what this Hollywood actress is supposed to I don't fit the mold, but I'm talented. So we'll let her make it because she's talented, but she doesn't look like what we, but beyond all that stuff, she has been able to not only be resilient, but I mean, she is. And I look at one of the articles that I just completed with one of my doctoral students. It is called um, 
moving from code switching to code stitching. So we foregrounded this new term. The code stitching term is different from code switching in the sense that we know code switching is, you know, I'm the black male, I'm coming to this environment, it's predominantly white. So let me change my talk, use hypercorrect English, or, oh, let, me fit it, let me fit in. Right. Code stitching, basically, what we said and our theory is that you come to you come to this environment as a black male, and what you do is you remain who you are. And if you remain who you are, you're resolute and determined to remain that person and to show your confidence being exactly who you are in your own skin. Then what you find is that you don't switch out of your identity. You, you stitch your identity on your, on your lapel, just like a pin. Mm-hmm. And then what you find is that the context begins to shift and change. You don't change. They change to fit you. Mm. And I think that's what Viola has done. So. Here it is a couple of years ago. She went from saying that basically what they're saying, I'm not traditional beauty. They're saying that I'm ugly to now. Here she is like the face of L'Oreal. Right. Um, seeing, the, seeing the commercials, I mean, showing, you know, showing her face, showing her body, you know, oh, well, all of a sudden this is beautiful black skin. So I think that that is part of what not only makes her her, but also I see so many parallels to what we do in the gifted world. Right. That's that's well said. Well said. Um, we'll keep going here. Question number three. Uh, if you're a parent or educator listening to you, and of course, you've got several books to offer. and We've kind of outlined those before. Uh, what, what's maybe a book recommendation that you would have for someone to maybe to um, maybe take a first step into this world and maybe understand um, kind of kind of what you're you're working towards yourself? A first step. Great question. I would say, and this is going to sound like the classic egghead, but I just can't step away from who I am. Just talked about identity. I think that, you know, it is worth reading and and getting yourself exposed to some of the people. I'm not saying that you have to read, you know, four and five hundred page books. I'm not even saying that you have to read a book. But I am saying that, you know, you need to listen to podcasts, listen to blogs, Mm. have conversations. Um, get to know the people who are out there in the field who are doing this work and spend some time educating yourself about what are they talking about? What are the topics? What are the themes? What are the issues? And just getting to know what is out there and what you need to know about, you know, becoming an advocate, becoming just aware of what's going on in the gifted and talented world. So I would say it starts there with awareness. So spend some time getting yourself steeped in, Steeped in the literature, steeped in the uh, podcast, steeped in just hearing what the conversation is out there. Yeah, and I'm hoping this, I definitely hope conversations with awesome researchers and, 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 and educators that, like yourself can, can definitely help people get going there. Um, okay, question number four. What's a key tip for parents to keep in mind if they have a student with great potential? Uh, okay, say it one more time. What's a key tip specifically for parents to keep in mind if they have a student with great potential? Mm, great question. I would say keep in mind that it, it can be a, a battle, um, but don't give up the battle. There are people and there are sources, there are resources, there are folks out there who are on your side and who can lend support, but just be willing to know that, you know, it's, um, 
there are obstacles, there are challenges, but there, there also is um, their breakthroughs and their wins. And we have seen them. And I would say that one of the things that I tried to do, my book, you mentioned Building on Resilience. Um, one of my last books, Building on Resilience Models and Frameworks for Black Males Across the P20 Pipeline, I specifically did that book for the very question that you're asking here, is that for parents, uh, community people, people of color who are doing like all these novel things related to Black males and Black male success, but many times they were getting deemed and they were getting a lot of pushback because it was like, oh, all the stuff you do on these Black males is anecdotal. And I wanted folks to have real research, real scholarship, real grounding, and um, real information that they could say, you know, it's not just anecdotal. What we did with this program, this Rites of Passage program, what we did with this particular um, lesson or unit, it, it is based in literature. It's not anecdotal. I mean, it's um, there are re there's real scholarship that goes along with this. So I would say for those parents, make sure that you are tapping into those resources, tapping into the people who can share with you, who can um, pull you along, who can give you guidance and who can give you some insight. Um, I'm doing this um, podcast with you. Um, also have done um, a couple of things for um, a colleague, um, Emily, there in uh, Dallas with uh, with the uh, text with Geffen, um, Gifted, Gifted Education Family Network. Out of mm. Dallas, so she had me to come in and do uh, actually done two uh, webinars, and um, the webinars have been based on building on resilience. Uh, my book so had uh, Tara Grantham come in. He he's one of the chapters. Um, we did one of the chapters. So the plan was to just expose parents, and we made sure that the parents had access to the book. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So we have done like a chapter by where we're trying to do a chapter by chapter. We started it and we're going to actually do more across the year to uh, expose parents to um, I donated some books. Um, we uh, made uh, the books available to parents. Uh, we make copies of some of the things just so folks could have exposure. One of the major chapters in that book is um, Tara Grantham's chapter on becoming uh, parents becoming what he calls upstanders as opposed to bystanders helping parents to understand how to advocate for their gifted and talented black male child. I love that. And that's, that's good. You know, my last uh, question or one of my last questions with you last time is uh, asking about the best way to foster students' potential. And you talked about a few things there. Uh, you, you, I think you brought up uh, Dr. Whiting's model and your model as well, and uh, believing in students and their potential. Uh, let me kind of change that a little bit for our last question here today. When finding students with potential, do not miss out on looking for blank. What would you say you can't miss out on? You got a kid right in front of you. Do not miss out on blank. And maybe it's going back to what you just said of upstanders or otherwise, but what would you say? I would say, you know, it's a term that we've already talked about. I would say don't miss out on potential. Mm-hmm. Potential comes from every strata, every community, every enclave. So, and again, that is um, that was one of the most important uh, terms in the um, 87 definition versus the 93 definition is that they added potential comes from every strata, from every enclave, from every corner. And I think that 
you know, the whole notion of potential. And I think that that has been something that I see even when even coming out of the gifted and ta- gifted and talented uh, vein, even looking at um, now that I'm a senior professor, full professor, I'm on a lot of committees where we are looking at faculty. People are coming in to interview for faculty positions. And my big thing is always, well, you know, look, you have to look at potential. You know, sometimes we say we, we want these scholars. We want to hire these people who are coming in with a, a gajillion dollars in grants and all that, or they have a whole bunch of money. Well, you know, a lot of people don't, but that doesn't mean they have potential. Does this person have a research agenda that shows potential to garner a whole bunch of money? Mm. There were a lot of positions that I wouldn't have gotten if you would have said, well, you have to have X million dollars to even get this position. Well, I didn't have it, but I guarantee you that I had a research agenda that over the years that has netted me, you know, over $10 million. Mm. I didn't start off with 10 million. I started off with, you know, maybe 12,000. <laughs> yeah. And because somebody said, give this guy a break because his research agenda shows potential to generating dollars down the line. And I think for black males and for people in general who are looking at, you know, these gifted and talented students of color that you have to look at their potential. I love that. And, and one of the things that I feel like is a big part of your story is your story and how you were raised. And don't forget our listeners on April 21st, this past year, uh, we've been able to, to dive into that a little bit more. So if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Fred Bonner, I, I would highly recommend going back to that conversation as well. Uh, Dr. Bonner, where can people plug into you? Where they where can they find you in case they want to find out more online? Sure. I would say the folks can look me up my um, on my Prairie View website. It is uh, uh, fabonner at pbamu.edu. And my um, webpage is Dr. Fred Bonner. And you can look me up there as well. And um, you can just put in a Google search. I would love for folks to learn a little bit more about our Black Male STEM Teach Grant. So if you put in BMST Fred Bonner Prairie Review, it'll pop up all the information about our grant. And um, we're working on the um, BMST Black Male STEM Teach website, and that should be done here within the next week or so. And I will make sure, Michael, that you have all the information so folks can connect with you and I'll get them give you the information to get out to them as well. I mean, as always, it's always just a great conversation. When it comes to research articles, uh, creating models. I don't know if there's anyone uh, doing it uh, better than you, Dr. Bonner, out there. And we're so glad that you're doing it in our our Texas community here. That's so great. I appreciate that, my friend. And the last thing I want to say to everyone is that, and um, actually we're we're about to work on that now because it's due. So um, South by Southwest this year in Austin. So we actually, um, we have a presentation, the Mach 3 Center about the Black Male STEM Teach Grant. So asking folks to come out and see us at South by Southwest as well. That's so great. Thanks again to our guest today, Dr. Fred Bonner II. We're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. 
Be sure to visit our website at RanzuliLearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12 and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children. Thank you.